You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's episode, we're actually going to look at all the different acronyms of what's involved when you're building a brick wall, from Standards Australia to the Australian Building Code Board to the National Construction Code to fire resistance levels to all of those things and how they interact. And I'm really excited to be joined by our senior structural engineer, Michael Congress, to discuss some of these things. Before we start, Michael, we do ask everyone that comes on the podcast if they have another use for a brick besides building a brick wall. Have you used the brick for another use there? Yeah, Elizabeth, in the past, I've used a brick to open walnuts during Christmas. I use it as a bit of a hammer to smash open the shell. A brick nutcracker, is that what you're saying? A brick nutcracker, that's exactly right. All right, are you doing just one at a time or a couple? Uh, Multiple, multiple. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, just to start off, it, it is confusing with so many acronyms. I know when I, you know, I've been in this industry only a short while, 10 years, and even I get confused with it. Could you sort of take us through, I guess, a little bit around maybe the key bodies? So if we start with Standards Australia, maybe you can just explain to the audience what encompasses that body and what authority they have over building design. Standards Australia have a multitude of roles. One of their main roles is the development of Australian standards. So what they do, they have a range of committees, These committees have members which are experts in their relative fields and they work together to develop, uh, update and publish new standards. So, Michael, we sit as an association on around 60 of these committees. Just give me an idea about what's the process, you know, like how are these committees reviewing this every single year or is there, you know, a process by which, say, for example, the masonry standard, Um, And we may as well mention that, which is AS 3700, that's the masonry standard. And that was reviewed in 2018. So what's the process of having a standard reviewed? Elizabeth, really it's a case by case need basis. So uh, a member of the standards committee or a member of the public might put in a proposal to amend a standard and that kickstarts the process. And from there, it's about the committee getting together understanding what the proposal is and then with the intent of updating or publishing a new revision to an existing standard. It's still up to the individual states and territories to choose whether they adopt the NCC in its entirety or to adopt it with certain provisions. It just keeps us on our toes the whole time, doesn't it, Michael? Absolutely. (laughs) Every state. Look, we're a large country with various states. And so making sure we understand which state you're building in and which parts of the code that have been adopted. What are the two performance requirements that the code relies on? So there's two performance pathways to achieve the performance requirement. The first one, which is the most straightforward pathway, is the DTS or the deemed to satisfy pathway. And that includes 
acceptable construction manuals or ACM. And, and that ties back into the standards that we talked about earlier, where the NCC references certain standards, AS 3700 being a primary reference standard. And by designing in accordance with this standard, you automatically comply with the deemed to satisfy solutions of the NCC. Right. So the easiest way for me, if I'm building a brick wall, is to build that brick wall in accordance with AS3700, and then I will be able to tick off a deemed to satisfy solution. Absolutely. Under the performance requirements for the National Construction Code. You're 100% correct. If we could just take a step back and sort of, you could explain how architecture came to you. Why architecture? You know, I think as a, as a small person, I had a very adventurous mother and one of the things she loved to do was investigate building sites. <laughs> and in our neighbourhood, it was pre-fencing and signs and safety and so a building site was basically like a public park. Anyone could walk on any time. And she used to take me, or just she used to go and I used to follow. And I, I remember thinking, what's it going to be? because it was always unformed and a mess, but you could see the beginnings of things. And I always used to try and imagine what it might become. Brick has a kind of innocence, I think. Everybody knows what it does. Everybody knows that it's flexible. Everybody understands that it's incremental in the way that you make it. So, and it, you know, in terms of what it looks like, as we talked about before, it can look like anything. You know, I've never designed my career, never. I just didn't. But it felt like if you just kept doing the projects, that in itself is a career path. One project yes. lent itself to thinking about another. A project might lead to another. At the end of my final year at university, one of the women in the class said, who are you going to give a job to, to our tutor, who was Neil Doback? And Neil said, C-Block. That was my nickname. <laughs> and I was as surprised as everybody else. Do you think it is different being a female in, in this architectural space? I think it is so profound, really. I've seen enormous changes, enormous. And the difference between what a female architect can expect now and the mentoring and the growth that a female architect can see ahead is so different to what I could see as a young female architect. Mm. It wasn't really a bolt of lightning. It it came about, I think, I had some skill as a child at drawing and painting and my parents encouraged that. Uh, and then I think at high school, I was sort of proficient at maths and sciences. And so it, it seemed like an obvious choice for my parents. My mother was pushing for fine art and my father had a commercial reality about it and <laughs> was pushing for architecture, so he won. My mother used to take me to see Marta Prize homes on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so I spent my Saturdays trawling through spec homes in the suburbs. You know, of course, I thought they were wonderful because they had things like en suites and in-ground pools. And <laughs> Why are some of the other reasons you like designing in it? Because you design a lot in brick. How, how big it is in comparison to you. So you can hold a brick in your hand and then understand how big the building is by, by virtue of its unitized nature. And I suppose a brick is appropriate for any type of building. So it's a house or a bank or any, any number of things there. And so if we're trying to think about our built environment and 
our new world city that's kind of establishing itself, then it seems like a good material choice. I suppose in the way I've been saying it, I don't really feel like bricks change too much. I suppose for us, it's a bit the same that I think the days of the architect is over and we should get on with making sort of kind of ordinary buildings that, that blend in <laughs> and contribute to a wider context rather than making these sort of objects for their own, these self-conscious objects for their own self-serving kind of things. So I suppose for us, brick contributes to a, a wider built environment in building an urban fabric or repairing an urban fabric. That's a beautiful way to express that. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.